verses 1 to 12. So could you follow with me as I read? It's from Paul speaking. He says, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you uh, for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers... It just, to, it, it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting ven vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Then he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marvelled at among all who have believed because our, testimony, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that in the name of the Lord Jesus so, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. Thanks, Don. A little disappointed. Liana spoiled my fun. I like sending the kids out. It's like the Wizard of Oz, like the flying monkeys. Go, my pretties! And they go scurrying out. Um, oh, while I'm getting all the sillies out of the way. Um, this moustache is indeed a work in progress. Um, please write your criticisms on our communication cards and drop them in the boxes. Um, I think I look like a Mario brother, um, so I'm not really sure it's working. But in any case, my name is Brendan. Um, I am delighted to be bringing the, uh, the message to you today, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. And you've made available to us the wisdom of your revelation. Now, we ask that you open it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we wrapped up 1 Thessalonians last week. Now we're cracking open 2 Thessalonians. If you recall, uh, the first letter was, was filled with Paul being mostly delighted and impressed by the Thessalonians. He commends them for their faithfulness uh, while they were beginning to suffer the consequences particularly the social consequences um, of following Jesus. They were suffering the social backlash. As the Jews had attacked the Christian Jews, the Gentiles were beginning to attack the Christian Gentiles. And Paul spends the first half of that letter commending the Thessalonians for their faithfulness, and then the second half encouraging them towards their virtues of love and of hope for the return of Jesus. And then an unknown period of time passes, probably a couple of years, and then we have Paul's second letter. This one appears to have a clarifying function, the Thessalonians took that previous letter to heart and they pinned their hopes on the second coming of Christ. That's good. However, that, this letter seems to suggest they were becoming impatient. They were operating under the impression that Jesus was going to return soon, like, 
later that day soon, and that's kind of bad. Some were developing habits of idleness. Why would they work if Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? Why not just scab some food and water off your richer friends? If Jesus is coming back literally any moment now, definitely by the end of the week, that seems like a pretty good ticket. Now, it's unclear how immediately Paul had believed Jesus would return. There's a, an argument to be made that his thinking moved over the span of his writing from early on, Jesus is coming back literally any moment, so be packed and ready to go, or to the words the slightly more modern, Jesus is coming back at some point, but we don't know when that point is, so don't hold your breath, you'll hurt yourself. But whatever the development of Paul's idea of the, uh, of the actual timing of the second coming, um, by the time we get to this letter, Paul has the wisdom to know that Jesus' promised return is not an invitation for Christians to get slack and try and run out the clock. Have you ever seen a football match where the leading team has the ball and there's about two minutes to go? And they don't want to let the other team have a chance to catch up, but they feel no pressing need to, uh, to impress anyone any further, so they drag out every movement. Every pass is slow when they get tackled. It's like they're... they're uh, completely lethargic on the way up because they're just waiting the clock out. It's like that for the Thessalonians, except the ball is the gospel, the game is their life, the siren is the end of the world, and they don't actually know what time is left, they just think they do. Yeah, I think I got that right. Might be not my clearest metaphor, but hopefully you get the gist. Paul is worried that they might not be prepared for the long haul. He's worried that they might not be ready to wait whatever time Jesus has in mind. Jesus had died and risen and promised to return and done all that within living memory of that church. And so if Jesus doesn't actually intend to return to that place immediately, and clearly he didn't because here we are 2,000 years later, then these Thessalonians are in danger of growing disillusioned, doubtful, and to start to wonder if all this being hated by everyone is worthwhile. So this letter is a course corrector. He says, God has not forgotten you. Don't obsess over this oppression. It is expected. Those who oppose God and his people will receive God's just punishment. Leave that to him. In the meantime, plan on living your life day by day that is worthy of the calling that you are given. And this first chapter contains a kind of a sample of all of that. So let's bite into it and then pick out the chewy parts. Verses 1 to 2, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, or Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, um, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's opening greeting. In, in a lot of Paul's letters, in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians, he's expecting to throw some more apostolic weight around. He's going to make some directive judgments, correct some people for sin, rebuke them a little, and so he opens with that authority to remind them that he is selected personally by God to lead his church. He would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the, uh, by the will of God, greets you. But in this case, like in the first letter of the Thessalonians, there's none of that. He emphasizes their common status as children of God, our Father. He's not loading up to rebuke sinners who are dangerous to the church. He's coming alongside to guard vulnerable brothers and sisters against an understandable error. So verses 3 and 4, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of all of you you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about the perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All commendable stuff. They're an example 
of how Christians should behave as far as loving one another goes. He talks about how he brags about them to other churches, particularly the way they endure their persecutions and trials. Now, why is he encouraging them about this particularly? Well, probably because he knows there is more persecution and trials on the way, and they shouldn't expect to be relieved immediately. They need a reminder about the nature of their suffering. For the early church, it's part of the deal particularly. As Christ was persecuted by the world, so his followers are persecuted by the world. And this is the kingdom of God working as intended. It's not the end state of the kingdom of God. There's a better day to come and they will see it, but not yet. For now, they need to fend off the bitterness to moderate the natural frustrations at being oppressed and ostracized and persecuted. And to keep their focus on the life, they are required to live now, not the one they are promised later. So Paul gives them this assurance from verses 5 through 10. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled as well as to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Now, this is not actually a particularly clear statement. This suffering and perseverance in the face of persecution is, verse 5, evidence that God's judgment is right. What's so right about the people of God suffering for being called by his name? But the judgment Paul is, is actually pointing to here is that ultimate judgment that he describes uh, in which the believers are counted worthy and their suffering is rewarded. So this verse suffers a little from the fact of the, the English word judgment, which usually is employed with a completely negative tone in English. To judge someone in English, if you use the word judge in common conversation, it's to be intensely critical and to place blame often unfairly. But God's judgment here particularly is what has so delighted Paul. It's this assurance that God does it right. He'll reward good for good, and he will punish those who do evil. He will recognize the Thessalonians as worthy of a place in the restored heavens and earth. And as someone whose faith had been severely tested, he sees this church bearing up under these pressures, and he declares, what more proof do you need that you guys are living in a saving faith rooted in Jesus Christ? but the way that you bear up under these persecutions. And he goes on to draw a divided picture of that final judgment. Those who have believed will stand in Jesus' presence and be counted worthy of the kingdom. And those who have been hassling them, casting them out, and harassing them will be locked out in the cold and dark of a godless eternity. Paul finishes the chapter by encouraging these young Christians to carry on in their demonstrated virtue and to fill out the worthiness that they're already exemplifying, verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our chapter, a very specific and hearty endorsement to an ancient church suffering from direct persecution 
wavering in their expectation of the imminent, imminent, immediate return of Christ. And told to see their resilience as a sign of their worthiness and to carry on in love and faith. So what's waiting for us in this chapter? What can a 21st century Australian church, which faces the gentlest persecution in the history of the world, get from this chapter? 2,000 years after the ascension of Jesus, at a point in history where every couple of years another too clever by half independent reverend predicts the end of the world this Wednesday for sure this time. The beast is the Soviet Union, the mark is the affiliation to the Communist Party, the time is now. Nope, okay, the beast is red China, the mark is the little red book, the time is now. No, okay, uh, the beast is Islam, the sign is the crescent, the time is now. No, okay, the beast is the European Union, the mark is the international passport, the time is now. No, now. All the while, the other 99.999% of Christians are shouting, Stop, you're making us look dumb. We've come to terms with the fact that Jesus is not necessarily returning immediately. We do not have a specific time to expect him. It's not our place to know. Our place is to live a life so worthy of our calling that if at any point Jesus turned up outside in the rapture mobile and started honking the horn impatiently, we'd be able to run out of the house and jump in without first needing to panic and then grab the dusty Bible off the shelf and try and pack in a lifetime of sanctification and obedience in the 15-second walk down the driveway. And I think the modern church has a pretty good grasp of that even if we're just as prone as the old to finding excuses not to live that worthy life. But in any case, the end-time content, the signs and the revelation warnings, I think is actually best left to next week's sermon in the next chapter. What's more valuable for us to discuss right now is Paul's assurance to these Thessalonians about that final judgment, about that final judgment, the nature of it. He says, don't worry, those who are oppressing you will get what's coming to them. God will make sure of that. What exactly are we supposed to do with that? Because this is an assurance coming from Paul, who got his start in Scripture by presiding over the first martyrdoms and hunting Christians like the Sanhedrin's own personal Pharisee bloodhound. He most assuredly is not going to be locked out of the kingdom in the cold and dark of a godless eternity. This, we must think, is a good thing. Indeed, the ideal thing, that the particularly evil people will in fact encounter Jesus and become particularly good, that they will be saved from that punishment. So really, how are we supposed to think about hell and the people who oppose us in the world or who do terrible things that seem so obviously deserving of punishment? Because Paul seems to be saying this as a way of comforting the Thessalonians, that punishment will fall on their enemies. So is it okay to take comfort in the destruction of the wicked? Or are we required to be brokenhearted over the fact that they were not saved and redeemed to the best of our knowledge. Put as simply as possible, is there any place for hate in the heart of a Christian? And that's a question this passage seems to raise and suggest a possible yes. But since the overwhelming majority of Scripture is built on the virtue of love and not hate, it's worth looking at in more detail. Now, last Sunday, on the other side of the world in the small town of Sutherland Springs, Texas, a man walked into the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs with its congregation of about 50 believers. He shot 26 of them dead, wounded another 28 of those killed with children 
shooter was driven off by local responders, and finally he shot himself. It's one thing to understand we must love our enemies. We can understand that to mean the, the ignorant, the unbelieving, those who pass a foolish judgment on the church, the people who don't love God, but we must hope will come to love him one day and be saved and know who Jesus is. But if that category of enemies we're meant to love includes the kind of enemy that flies planes into towers or rampages through a local church, then we might have a problem because it is much harder to love that kind of person. Because if you can think about that kind of person that does those things and you don't feel the desire for revenge, even a little bit, then you are some kind of lizard because that is not compassionate, that is cold-blooded. Proverbs 8.13 says this, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Psalm 97.10, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. Psalm 26.5, I abhor, same word, hate, the assembly of the evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That's a surprising amount of positive framing for the topic of hate. And we can't just dismiss this as irrelevant. Whatever we think about Jesus and the law, whatever is meant that Jesus overcame the law particularly, Jesus certainly didn't come to abolish the Psalms. And this describes an attitude of hatred towards evil and evildoers, which is clearly framed in these inspired verses as a virtuous way of thinking. We have to do something with that. Now, over and against these verses are a whole slew of other verses which seem to promote a love so resistant to hatred that it is willing to self-destruct rather than yield to it. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay this evil. Wait for the Lord, he will avenge you. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Exodus 23, 5. Let all that you do be done in love. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Matthew 5, 43 to 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 1 John 3, 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So the Holy Spirit saw fit to give us a book of scriptures that contained all of these verses. And if hatred and love are opposites, as we are encouraged poetically to believe, then we are encouraged here to judiciously cultivate both, and the whole, and the whole thing is a helpless contradiction. But what if hatred is not the opposite of love as it is often portrayed? What if it's actually the natural consequence of love and can, like any other part, of human feeling be terribly corrupted. People only hate that which threatens things they love. 
Now, we're talking in kind of varying degrees here, but let's be entirely honest. Hatred really is this desire that someone or something should be punished or removed. It only really occurs up and against something that we love. You love good, so you hate evil. You love the peaceful safety of our world at its best, so you hate those criminals and terrorists who attack and destroy it. You love your son, so you hate the bad crowd that he has fallen in with. You love your daughter, so you hate the guy who breaks her heart. You love your spouse, so you hate yourself when you hurt them. Once we start seeing hate as a function of love like that, it becomes easy to understand, and it, in fact, it exposes the nature of one of the greatest sins the Bible talks about, idolatry. Because if you love wealth, you will hate anything that threatens your wealth, even the command of God to be generous and giving. And if you love praise and recognition, you will hate anything that robs you of that glory, even God's command for you to praise and recognize him. The danger of hate is not so much that you'll hate too much and not love enough. It's the danger of hate is that we will love something, turn that thing into an idol, and then hate God for threatening that idol. So when Paul reassures the Thessalonians that those who persecute them will get what is coming to them, He's not endorsing a blanket, tribalistic resentment of all unbelievers. That would not make sense. Christ's message was to go into the unbelieving nations and make disciples. But it's a recognition of the right instinct inside that frustration. Paul spent all this time lavishing praise on the Thessalonians for loving each other. If they didn't have some hatred in them for the people persecuting the people they love then that might be a shallow and meaningless love. But they must also be acting in love towards those enemies, doing everything to display God's goodness through their deeds and their faith in the hopes that more of these people who have been attacking them, attacking God's people and his church, would actually become believers and become brothers and sisters. So God is actually requiring us to do a very complex thing here, to be sophisticated about the way that we love and hate we can't simply despise whole blocks of people. That's stupid and destructive. Our call is to reach across divides and to pour the love of God into all cultures and places and times, even those filled with people who hate us enough to kill us. But we can't just hover around detached from the world, projecting serenity and love without the possibility of feeling something like hatred for the people who visit pain on our loved ones. That's ridiculous and love doesn't work that way. And the idea that, that love must exist entirely without its hatred aspect there might be damaging to faith because it becomes impossible to reconcile the love of God with the reality of hell. Evil is worth hating. And the people who are devoted to evil are worthy of hate. Now, Paul was one of those people. He hunted believers and was complicit in murder, and every believer in Jerusalem must have wished that he was dead. Then Jesus stepped into his life, and in Paul's own words from Romans 6, he says this, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The early Christians wanted him dead, and they got it. The man that was hunting them was crucified with Christ, and a new man, one who loves him to the point of bursting, has taken his place. And this is not strictly metaphor. It's not just a nice way of speaking. This is how we resolve hatred and love. This is how God resolves hatred and love. If that glimmer of divinity inside our core responds to God when he calls our heart, the sinful part of us that loves the world and everything else so much that it hates God must die. And that glorious fraction which God has preserved spends the rest of our lives growing up into its place. And if that glimmer of divinity in us does not respond to the call of God, then there is nothing in the world that will turn that person back to him. It's not within our power to know who might come someday to know Jesus or not or where they ultimately stand in judgment with him. But we're right to despise the sin that twists a person to become something they weren't meant to be. And to love the divine image that's buried in all of those people so deeply that we might have to spend our whole lives searching it out. So what's true for that ancient church is true for ours too. We can take hope in the truth that God is the true judge. That those who really despise him and his people will be judged according to their evil and we can take hope in the possibility that maybe some of those people will hear the gospel and it will bring them to die on the spot so that they can become a new person. The one they were meant to be all along and that person will emerge and draw its first breath in the world. So who do you hate? And I don't mean a brother or sister with whom you have a grudge, although that's a concern and worthy of praying about. I mean on a greater scale here. There's plenty of bad folks in the world, whether violently so or just politically so. There are people who kill Christians all over the world, who attack innocent passers-by. That kind of thing seems to crop up on a weekly basis now. Or there may be people in your life who cause you or those you love such grief that you can barely stand them. And it would be dishonest to say that you felt only love for them. Jesus commanded us to pray for such people. And Paul suggests we rest assured in the judgment of God. So let's take them both seriously. It's easy to pray spontaneously or in a regular habit for things we love and for people we care about. But take some time this week to think about the other side of that. Are there people in the world far or near who you would consider your enemy? Pray for them. Pray that God would pull the good out of the bad and let the bad die. That he would give us comfort in the sureness of his judgment. Hate the evil in them. Love the good. And trust God to divide one from the other. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for the people we love that you have put in our lives, our families, our friends, our church, our community, and our worldwide body of believers. We ask your blessing over each of them as we wait for the day that your son comes again. But there are those who come against us and your people, and we pray for them now. For that portion of the Islamic world devoted to the destruction of the Christian West, God, we pray. We pray that their evil intentions are thwarted, that the harm that they seek is deflected, and that the light of Christ would penetrate their communities and their hearts so thoroughly that a revival of the ancient Christian world would sweep through what we used to call the Muslim world. May they come to know you like we have come to know you and so die to sin like we have. For those who despise religion in all its forms, who sometimes attack but most often litigate and berate your people, we pray for them, Lord. We pray that the, the primacy of Christianity in this country is strengthened, not weakened. We pray that efforts to destroy the church are turned around on the destroyers, Lord. And we pray that into that chaos, you call to the hearts of the unbelievers so that many may come to know you and die to their old ways and then live forever in your kingdom as our brothers and sisters. For those factions of those who profess to love you, God, we pray. For those who claim that you are their God but who commit evil and who incite conflict with others called by your name. We pray for those now. Father, we ask for unity in your kingdom. We ask that those who are falsely called by your name would come to genuinely know you. That their false confession would become true and the violence and division in their heart would be healed and replaced with love for your people and your gospel. And finally, Lord, for the enemies in our own lives, about whom you certainly know, Lord, we pray. We ask that you change their hearts. We ask that you give us the strength to withstand suffering in whatever form it takes and to have the wisdom to know how to righteously respond. And the peace in our hearts, Lord, to remember that ultimately you are the judge of the world and your judgment is good and perfect in total. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus.